Hello, and thank you for tuning in to our new series, NASH Trends Alert, where each quarter experts in the field will get together to discuss current news and emerging trends affecting fatty liver disease community. If you're new to NASHNet podcasts or you want to learn more about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, we commonly refer to this as NAFLD, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which we refer to as NASH, then we recommend tuning in to our NAFLD NASH educational series, which you can find at www.nashnetwork.org. I'm Dr. Danani, one of the hepatologists at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. And I'm Dr. Michelle Long, Director of the NAFLD Research Center and Director of Clinical Research for Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Long and myself are really excited to be here today to kick off the series and discuss current and emerging industry trends, but also just describe some of our experiences and how our practices and also research has changed uh, during the times of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also going to try to speak to you a little bit about recent regulatory updates and exciting molecules or targets that may be upcoming in the next few months in the NAFLD space. Dr. Long, with that, let's get started. Great. I'm Dr. Long. I uh, work in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease research, and it's also my clinical interest seeing patients in the office, although we had a major shift in that with COVID-19. We can talk about that in a little bit, but mostly what I do is seeing patients and performing research. So I'm on a career development award from the NIH. So I spend a lot of my time doing research in uh, kind of the pre-serotic NAFLD population. And as for myself, as I mentioned, I'm one of the hepatologists at the Icon School of Medicine in New York City. And yes, both my clinical and research interest is also in NAFLD and NASH. But specifically, I'm interested in risk stratification and identification of NAFLD in high-risk populations, specifically in people with type 2 diabetes and obesity, to name a few. We do a lot of work in screening programs, especially in our primary care settings and also in some of our subspecialty settings to approach patients considered at high risk for NAFLD and risk stratify them into care pathway arms. And this has really been the initial work that we did that has now developed into multidisciplinary approaches to this disease and focusing really on some of the nitty gritty management of this disease in light of the fact that we don't have any therapeutic targets at this time. My other focus is developing sustainable programs through lifestyle intervention for this patient population. And that's the majority of the work that I do in this area. So with that as an introduction, maybe we should go into how our management of patients with NAFLD has changed over the last year. And I'm sure both myself and Dr. Long have pretty similar but different experiences based on the fact that we're in different geographic locations. Dr. Long, do you want to describe how management may have changed for you during COVID-19 or not? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, we had seen a huge shift just about this time last year. We had to convert all of our outpatient encounters to telemedicine encounters. And we were able to do that over a two-week period of time, which was a big steep learning curve. Started out 
doing really all phone visits and now moving into kind of more of a virtual visit format, having telemedicine with video, which uh, patients have really liked, I think. So it'll be interesting to see what we keep as part of our telemedicine portfolio kind of moving forward. But there've been a number of challenges. You know, when I have encounters with patients, usually in the office, we usually start that risk stratification process on that encounter with performing a vibration control transient elastography or fiber scan examination right along with the other parameters that you would get like vital signs and weight and things like that. But I haven't had, you know, we had to stop doing all of those things. And so we had to also rely on other risk stratification tools, which of course there are many, including blood-based tools. Although at the same time, it was difficult to get patients to come in to get the blood test done. So even though things like the fibrosis four or the NAFLD fibrosis score are simple, easy to calculate, usually on readily available blood tests. You know, if it was a new patient referred into the practice, I didn't have available blood tests, then it's hard to really direct that kind of initial conversation without those tools available. And then the hesitancy to come in and, and get the blood tests kind of understandable when we were in the peak of COVID. Then there was issues in our follow-up patients as well, you know, talking with our patients who had previously developed lifestyle interventions that worked for themselves, uh, going to the gym, going out walking, you know, we're in very urban environment in Boston. Most of the patients that I take care of live in Boston. So it's a very, you know, it's crowded. It's hard to go out for a walk and keep your social distance gyms all closed down, all of that. So for the most part, we've seen our patients with fatty liver have pretty much all gained weight. Now that we are moving more towards in-person visits, we're starting to just starting to see the impact of um, this year, which was very stressful and often didn't involve a lot of physical activity for a lot of my patients. How about for you, Dr. Danani? Yeah, so I think a very similar experience now that we've approached literally a one year of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, majority of our visits were telemedicine visits. And I found that for an initial evaluation for fatty liver disease, you know, you could probably do that pretty adequately, you know, in terms of taking a history, especially review of medications, limited in terms of our physical exam, as you can imagine. But really, you know, you can get into some of the alcohol and weight history, which sometimes is sufficient for you to understand people's relationship or behavior around food or, you know, some of their metabolic diseases. Similar to you, we had a hard time getting people to come in to do a blood test. Um, and one of the ways we worked around this is we had patients go to local lab work that were closer to their zip codes to get blood tests done. The neat thing in our healthcare system, and maybe similar in yours, is that uh, LabCorp and our EPIC system were able to talk to each other or see, see the orders that were ordered by a physician. So we could get those tests performed at LabCorp and we would actually get those results. So that was a nice part about getting some of the initial testing for workup of fatty liver disease. And through that, I definitely relied more on the FIB4 score. The FIB4, as we all know, is based on simple blood tests that we routinely get and, and incorporates our age into that equation. What was difficult, of course, was 
the patient population that we had already identified or we were suspicious had advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. Um, we found that, I mean, I would, I'm speaking anecdotally at this point, um, you know, make, making sure people were getting their ultrasounds every six months for liver cancer screening or surveillance was difficult. In addition to that, being up to date with some of their other cirrhosis management, that was tough. Just like the general population, you know, majority of people gained weight during this time. There was more mindless snacking going on during this time. There was an initial study, I think, during this time that looked at that people snack about 22% more of which majority of the time it's sugary based foods. So this is something as you know, as as we know, our patient population struggles with quite a bit, especially with a close association with um, obesity and type two diabetes. And majority of my patients did gain weight during this time. And now it's really trying to work with them. Again, how do we get back in control of our metabolic disease and what can we do? So challenging for sure, but I do see telemedicine being in the future of how we practice medicine. It just, I think it's going to be how creative we can get with telemedicine now in terms of who can we evaluate initially via telemedicine and what tests really need to be done on site and identifying the patient populations that really need a little bit more handholding. Now it's the interesting part, how do we incorporate this into our practice in the future? Absolutely. You know, I think that was really great that you had a system available to have labs done at a more convenient location for patients. I think that at least our hospital in the region at Boston Medical Center, we were really kind of the epicenter of um, the COVID-19 pandemic in Boston. And so it was really a hard sell to have uh, ask our patients to come in, whether it was for labs or whether it was for biopsies or other procedures. And of course, a lot of those things like biopsies were put on hold for the months when the numbers were really quite high. But fortunately, over the summer, things uh, were getting better and we were able to kind of open up elective procedures again, but it still, and it still is challenging to get patients to come in and actually, you know, agree to do, because there's, there's different more steps to go through for our patients. So, you know, if they come in for a liver biopsy, they need to have a COVID-19 test done two days before, confirm that it's negative, and then self-quarantine until their test day. And so that is also a barrier, but hopefully things will start looking better as we have more vaccines available. The other thing that you said that I wanted to touch on was I kind of think about what does this mean for the future and what are the opportunities here? You know, I think that a lot of my patients, especially ones that do come from a distance or have transportation issues, you know, it's never fun to park in downtown Boston. So they really actually enjoyed the telemedicine option. And I think that is a nice way to be able to access patients. Um, there are some, I think that would really thrive having that platform. And it may also be a way that as subspecialists that we can outreach to other populations or even providers to consult on different conditions. And previously before COVID, it was difficult to do those things. And now I think there are some opportunities even to practice across state lines. It's easier to get your medical license in different states so that may be an opportunity. I think there are also opportunities in re remote patient monitoring. 
you know, there are now digital health technologies and platforms such as scales uh, that you could use to monitor weight in addition to Fitbits and step counts and monitoring blood pressure and blood sugar and, and other things. But, you know, I think remote patient monitoring of weight may be an interesting opportunity to keep track of patients and their progress with different lifestyle intervention programs. And maybe that could be something that, you know, we can further develop and will stay kind of in the post-COVID-19 pandemic world. Yeah, I think so. And I actually think the telemedicine approach really allows you to do more frequent check-ins with your patient. You know, it's sometimes just a five-minute quick visit. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. How's it going? Um, And sometimes that check-in makes such a big difference. I mean, we do know that the more frequent check-ins people have when it comes to a lifestyle intervention program, for instance, people have more success with it. One of the biggest drawbacks, unfortunately, for people like you and I, with you know, as subspecialists, it's one hard to come in and see us, but also we don't, patients don't get to see us as often as they would like. And so the telemedicine platform actually provides a unique way to still be, you know, still remain connected to your physician. And you're almost like their champion as they're, you know, making changes through this process. So I definitely think there's some good, and I think we just need to get creative in terms of what, what, what do we do with it? moving forward. Absolutely. You know, and I think certainly in the the science space, the medical space, we are doing a, a good job of kind of taking advantage of the opportunities. I think we're we all missed out on seeing each other in person at our national meetings over the last year. But there also have been a lot of talks and invitations and um, different different opportunities to share to share science and to collaborate. For example, I'll be giving a talk in a few weeks uh, in Texas, you know, from my living room. And, you know, why not? At our Grand Round series at Boston Medical Center, we've had, uh, we've invited speakers from across the globe um, to come and and share their research um, and their clinical knowledge with us. And it's been a really rich opportunity. The other thing that we did, we have a demonstration kitchen at our hospital, and we have um, a very talented dietitian that that runs the test kitchen. And we put on a CME course for our providers, which was really fun because it was a culinary medicine course. We talked about the science behind different diets, and then there was a demonstration kitchen live demonstration where you could follow along and it was all over zoom and so you know we were dicing carrots and making dinner together um and it was it was really warm and nice and a really great way to stay connected and actually to pick up some some new cooking techniques and i think this was aimed at providers but there's no reason why we couldn't do a similar type of presentation um to our patients and you know i think getting creative and thinking about how can we take advantage of the fact that we, even my, you know, seven-year-old can set up a Zoom meeting now? Um, we're all getting more comfortable with this kind of technology. What can we do moving forward and how can we kind of enrich care in the future? Yeah, like bring resources to the patient versus always expecting the patient to come come to us. Yeah, I'm excited to see all the new ideas that come out of this. Maybe we could switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how this has also changed 
our research, clinical trials in this field, and also just conferences. I don't know about you, but I attended the ASLD conference in November virtually. And it was interesting. I wasn't quite sure how it would turn out, but I was actually able to attend things that I really wanted to listen in on. But the nice thing about that virtual conference was that if it was a section that I missed, I could go go back and listen to it. And I found that to be really helpful compared to when you do it in person. Sometimes you have two talks you want to go to at the same time and you have to pick one over the other. And so that worked out really well for me. Were you able to? Yes. ASLD conference? Yes, I did uh, attend the digital um, yeah. ex- the digital experience of the ASLD yeah. uh, conference, and I agree it was it was nice to be able to you know not have to pick. There were some things that were live that you did have to pick, but for the most part, everything was available on demand, and I did like that format. I think one thing that I kept was I still blocked my schedule. You know, I still said yes. You know, I can't do clinic because I'm attending the meeting. And I think that was really important because I always find that it's difficult, you know, as obligations kind of pile up, it's difficult to make space to have that teaching and and learning time. So I think that was an important strategy. I think that at least at, at ASLD, you know, I think there's a lot of thought about, you know, how are we going to continue um, having a digital format, um, at least a component of a digital format, and how to make that better. You know, I think the thing that you really miss out on is the casual bump-ins with thought leaders and these informal gatherings that can be really nice to kind of get to know the the community, um, but also can be really helpful. I mean, for me personally, my research career was really launched by, you know, a meeting that I had arranged uh, with a thought leader in fatty liver disease at an ASLD conference, and they helped make some very important connections for me. And that's what I worry about that, you know, we really need to have a forum for that and make sure that we are making sure that the young investigators, uh, early career investigators are getting the networking that they need. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's something that's a little bit more challenging in the virtual world. I do foresee in the future, maybe a hybrid format where there will be some things on site and some things still being offered virtually, especially for meetings participants cannot attend, you know, people that are coming from further away. um, You know, it can be expensive to travel to some of these meetings. But yeah, I do, I do fear. And, you know, personally for myself, you sometimes lose the personal connection that you can make in person versus virtually, you can really learn a lot from meeting someone in person versus remotely. The other thing that you really point out, and it's really important for other clinicians or researchers is that when you're attending these conferences that are now virtual or will be virtual for at least the next year or so, is that you really have to block out that time and try not do something else at the same time. Uh, What's going to end up happening is you won't be able to attend the conference and you will be seeing patients instead or have personal obligations instead. So really, if you are attending a conference virtually, carve out the time and dedicate the time to actually attend it. The other thing that we found you know, despite all the challenges of COVID-19, scientists and experts in NAFLD continue to push really hard in terms of 
clinical trials and in search for at least getting approval of the first therapeutic target. Um, as we're all aware, um, and you know, there are over 100 clinical trials right now in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the therapeutic space. And even over this very challenging time, we've had some promising results from some, you know, targets um, that I'm quite excited about. You know, one of the things that I've really enjoyed is reading some of the publications that have been recently published. Um, there's some promising data for the GLP-1s, for instance, in NASH, and, you know, we'll be having a phase three trial. So despite some of these challenges, we're still pushing along to investigate therapeutic targets. For us at our institute, unfortunately, because of COVID, um, all other clinical trials kind of became secondary because we were, in, we were involved in some of the initial primary clinical trials that were running for COVID-19, but also from patients that were in our current clinical trials, it was difficult to have patients come in for these clinical trial visits. And I'd be interested to hear what your experience was like at Boston Medical Center. We were literally amending protocols and working with different companies about, you know, how they plan to address the limitations of in-person visits. You know, how do we assess risk and benefit about who should come in, who shouldn't come in. But I think it also taught us, again, a lot of things that there are maybe some visits that could be done virtually moving forward in clinical trial settings. But there's some that are just absolutely vital where patients do need to come in. We had a bit of a tough time and it was very stressful, you know, for people, people like myself and you, I'm sure, who are trying to um, create a clinical trial, a NASH network at your institute. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. And appropriately, the focus was on cutting edge trials for COVID-19. And so I echo what you've said. The other issue too, is that the IRB, the Institutional Review Board and other, the clinical trials office, everyone was really focusing on the COVID-19 um, directly related research. And so there were a lot of new proposals, uh, some of which were pretty complicated coming through. And so a lot of the, the usual kind of timeline that we had previously taken for granted of, you know, our efficient system really got pushed back. And so it would, you know, I've worked with my research coordinators. Didn't we submit that a while ago? And, you know, it was uh, just taking a long time to even get things through the IRB because they we're really focusing on reviewing the COVID-19 related proposals first. So I agree. Uh, and I think it was really challenging to figure out who should come in. Is it really, uh, is it really necessary? Is it really yeah. worth, worth coming in and kind of putting it, putting everyone at risk, especially in the early days when we knew so little but, you know, my experience was that I was overall impressed by the responsiveness of the different sponsors and clinical research organizations that are help run the studies that we're involved with, at least, that they were very understanding and helpful. And I think hopefully we won't go through something like that again. And now we'll have better systems in place moving forward should we ever be faced with something like this in the future. One thing that's been really nice is that the people that, you know, help run the trials, the clinical research organizations and the support staff, they've been available. We've had a lot of Zoom type meetings or tele type meetings where 
they have made themselves available on short notice to to help us kind of problem shoot some of the situations that we were dealing with around enrollment and patient engagement. And I think that is really welcome. I really have enjoyed that kind of connection with the different study uh, staff. So I think that is also easier and I hope, you know, with Zoom. And so I hope that that is another thing that remains that, you know, we can keep a lot of these meetings virtual because it is very, very efficient. That's great. We've reviewed quite a few things today. Thank you again, Dr. Long. It was really great to um, share these experiences with you. And it sounds like we have very similar experiences in different clinical settings, but despite all the challenges, we've been innovative and we've thought outside of the box and we've made it work for our patients, for our research, and already thinking about different ways to incorporate some of the things we've learned into care in the future. This concludes our first NASH Trends Alert podcast for the year. This is our first one. Again, if you want to learn more about NAFLD or NASH and stay up to date, please visit us at www.nashnetwork.org. Dr. Long, if there's something you want to add. I just want to thank everyone for joining us today, and we hope you will tune in next time. Yeah, thank you once again, and see you all soon.